are in our third week of a study of the seven churches of Revelation. We've looked at Ephesus and Smyrna, and today we're going to look at the church at Pergamum. Uh, this is, I hope you're growing in your appreciation for the ancient history of Turkey uh, during our journey through these uh, seven churches. We've got slides that, that go with this series that show you exactly where we are uh, on the map, so I hope that's been helpful to you as we get ready to start. We're looking, uh, we're moving sort of in somewhat of a horseshoe fashion as these churches would be uh, on a mail carrier's route to deliver them all. So we began in Ephesus, which was a, um, a, a premier city during John's uh, date and time. And then we looked at the church at Smyrna, which is even more prestigious, uh, cultural and political entity in John's day. And this one this week is the city of Pergamum. And the city of Pergamum is probably the most um, prestigious and politically powerful city of John's day. Um, Roman historians said that it was by far the most uh, well-known or uh, distinguished city in all of Asia during John's time here. So we're going to look at this church uh, at the city of Pergamum. Pergamum means the citadel. Let me tell you a little bit about this, this city. Uh, as I said, politically and religiously, it was at the height of its game. Uh, it was one of the few cities in the Roman province that would allow and uh, authorize emperor worship. So you'd have an emperor cult, kind of an imperial cult that would happen uh, in this city at this time. They would have temples to Zeus, so politically and religiously, uh, very, very popular, very, very big. Um, literarily speaking, it had the, if you've heard of the library at Alexandria, Pergamum had the second greatest library in its day. It's the place where they first began to use parchment and move away from papyrus to parchment, which was stretched animal skins. Uh, if you know the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written on parchment. This is the place that uh, pioneered and developed uh, that technology in its day. Medically speaking, it held a, uh, it held a med school. Uh, one of the great old uh, ancient Greek physicians was a guy named Hippocrates, which we have many medical students who are with us and physicians in our church, so you've heard of the Hippocratic Oath uh, created by Hippocrates. Well, second in Hippocrates' day was a guy named Galen. Galen came from the medical school that was at Pergamum. So technologically, politically, educationally, religiously, it was one of the premier cities of its day. It was the center of the Roman Empire for 250 years. So it's not a city. Uh, all of these cities that we looked at have been popular cities. This is the peak. This is the city that we're going to see here today uh, has an incredible amount of influence, not only over its region, but the entire empire of its day. So we're going to write to the church at Pergamum. Now, the last two weeks, we've looked at churches that are dealing with some pretty extreme things. We started with Ephesus, and Ephesus's struggle was losing their first love, that they were great at examining and um, going after false apostles that would find their way into the church. And then last week, we looked at the, the church at the city of Smyrna, that was dealing with suffering. So you have these kind of two extremes that a church may go through. On this side, you have Smyrna where they're facing suffering, where the devil is about to throw them into prison, and Jesus says, be faithful unto death. And then you have this hard, kind of crusty church over here that's lost the, the savor and the aroma of grace. And those are pretty extreme scenarios for a church to deal with. 
that if your church is facing suffering or your church has completely lost its love of the grace of God, uh, we have an antidote for those. Well, this church today is going to find itself in somewhat of a different place. It has a great history, much like Ephesus did. But it's facing something that is infiltrating its church. It's got a tumor that's growing, that's about to go malignant in the life of the church. The church isn't abandoning any major doctrinal points. In fact, what Jesus will say here in a minute is they'll hold fast to the truth of his name. That they've got right doctrine, they've got right preaching, they haven't abandoned the faith. But what they have are a few. What they have are some who are in the church who are holding to a certain kind of teaching that is incredibly dangerous for a church. It's the unseen malignant tumor that is growing in the life of the church that is going to be incredibly dangerous to the body if they don't deal with it. And that's the church at Pergamum. So let's jump in here and see. I think this danger is a danger that you're going to see is going to be common in your own life. It's going to be a danger that every church in every season is going to face, that they're going to have to figure out how to cut this tumor out of their church so that the whole body would be preserved and it wouldn't endanger the health of the whole church. All right? So let's jump in here and take a look at the letter to the church of Pergamon. Let's pray together, ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, we come to you as dependent, insufficient people. We come here this morning eager for you to speak into our lives, into our hearts, into the things that we think, into the desires that we have. We pray that we would be humble and receptive, that our ears and hearts would be open, that our hands would be open to the changes that you want to make in our life and even in our church here today. May we be a people who are quick to repent and to find hope from your hand and from the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we find great encouragement in his name. May we find great courage and be strengthened in our inner man this morning as we look into your word. Father, give me clarity and give me courage as we look at a text that uh, in this letter to the church at Pergamum is somewhat of a sobering text. It's a dangerous text. So, Father, this morning would you find us faithful? Would you find us dependent upon the word of God and by, by which we live? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 2, and you got your finger in 1 Corinthians 10. You with me? Nod or move your head in some direction because I can't see you. you everybody's, I know you all smile at me at the same time with your masks on, which makes me warm in my heart. Uh, did you, uh, side point, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Didn't you enjoy fall? <laughs> Wasn't that great? Those six days, fall was here. We went and got pumpkins. We decorated them all, and they rotted in 72 hours on the porch. That was our day. I was like, well, I guess we missed fall. That was it. And summer's back. So be encouraged. It's going to be great, isn't it? Rainy summer nights. All right. That's all. That has nothing to do with it. Look at Revelation chapter 2, the church at Pergamum. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, when Jesus says he has that, uh, don't you get a little bit nervous? When the one who walks among the lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand also says that he has the sharp two-edged sword, you kind of sit up a little straighter. 
So, so far, we've had Jesus who loves and controls, can open and close a church. We've had a Jesus who's with us in suffering, who when we are faithful to the death, he is on the other side. But this church, as he writes to the church of Pergamum, he begins with the sword. Now, the sword is not an uncommon New Testament motif. Uh, if you've read through your New Testament, you know the sword is, is mentioned quite often. I want to highlight just two things about the sword, uh, and we'll, we'll keep moving here through this text. But this, uh, when Jesus says that he has the sharp two-edged sword, the word for sword is only used really in, in one other place, or at least this technical term for sword, and it's used in Luke chapter 2. When Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple, Simeon comes and he tells Mary, uh, he kind of declares a prophetic truth over Jesus and over Mary. It's in Luke chapter 2, and here's what he says. I'll just read it to you. Luke chapter 2, verse 33. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said, Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. This is 2.35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. <clears throat> That's the same word here. That Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword. And in Luke chapter 2, the purpose of the sword in Simeon's prophecy is that it would expose, that it would lay bare the truths that are happening in the hearts and minds of people. That's what the word of God does. Now, if you've read through your New Testament, you probably think about Hebrews chapter 4 that also talks about the word of God being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So that when Jesus has the sharp two-edged sword, it's not just for the purpose of exposure to see what was going on, but there's also a purpose of evaluation. In Hebrews chapter 4, that the word of God now evaluates truths, rights and wrongs, truth and error, good and bad. That's what the word of God does in the life of the church. Exposure and evaluation. You've probably read Ephesians chapter 6. that talks about the armor of the Christian. And that we should take the sword of the spirit, which is the, the word of God. So when Jesus begins and he starts <clears throat> to give this letter to the church at Pergamum, he says, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to expose and I'm going to evaluate. If you want another E, he's also going to execute judgment. And that's what the word of God is going to do to this church. So Jesus is coming not just with revelation and evaluation, but also execution of judgment. He's about to declare that there's a problem in the church. And he's going to do it through the power of his word, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's this two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth in Revelation chapter 19 that says he makes war with the word that comes from his mouth. So when Jesus says he has a sword and he comes to her church, we should be paying attention. When Jesus says he has the sharp two-edged sword and he begins to speak into your life with the word of God that begins to lay bare the thoughts and intentions of your heart, you should pay attention and sit up straight. Verse 13. Let's see where this city is. Jesus said to Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know your, uh, that's not what he said. Smyrna, he said that. What did he say to Ephesus? I remember, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Ah, uh, yeah, Smyrna was, I know your tribulation. I should have known that. 
know your hardship. I know your works. I know your hardship. What's he know here? He knows your zip code. Look at what verse 13 says. I know where you dwell. It's not I know where you're passing through. It's a word that means to to live in a place, to essentially to tabernacle, to set up shop. This is your hometown, church. This is the place that you grew up in. You've been here a long time. And you live in this place, but there's something else that's happening in your city, in your zip code. You dwell where Satan's throne is. You don't dwell where Satan has his house. You dwell in the place where Satan has his palace. What's a throne tell you? A throne is a, is a, is a center of power and authority and control. If Pergamum means citadel, this is Satan's citadel. This is his fortress. This is the place where he has taken up residence and he is unopposed. Now, during this time, Pergamum had a couple of different religious things happening. They had a, what I've already said is a, is a temple to um, emperor worship, which was a part of their main religious cult fanaticism of the day that they believed the emperor was uh, God. They also had temples of a variety of kinds. One of the most prominent was a temple to Zeus. So that this was a center of false worship and false belief. And Jesus says, I know where your house is. I know where you're dwelling. I know your zip code is right next door. It's if Jesus said to Citadel Square, I know where you are, 29403. Where Satan's throne is. Yet... Regardless of where you live, you do something that's very commendable to to this church. You hold fast my what? My name. What's the name of God? The name of God is the biblical, it's the object and content of our faith. It's the truth about who God is. It's God's self-disclosure and revelation that when Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I will what? Say, do it. Come on now do it. I'll do it. What does that mean? It means that Jesus says your theology is correct. You have a proper biblical understanding of who Jesus is, of who God is, of who the Trinity is. Your doctrine and theology is right, regardless of what your neighbors think, regardless of you being in a place where Satan holds dominance, authority, power, and control. You hold fast my name. Not only that, and you did not deny my faith. Now watch how Jesus looks into the past tense with this church. This church has another glorious past, just like Ephesus did. So not only do they have the right doctrine up here, the theology and the truth about who God is and who Jesus is and what he has done and content and object, but they also put it to work. They also put their faith in it. They don't just have a head knowledge. They have a heart dependence of faith upon who God is and what he is like. That they trust Jesus in a place where it's hard. And in that way, they're a lot like this church at Smyrna. They've got good theology. They've got good faith. You even held it in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. This is a guy we don't know a lot about. Um, But what Jesus does is give this guy, Antipas, the same title that John gives to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. That Jesus is called in Revelation chapter 1 the faithful witness. That he's trustworthy and he's true. 
that he speaks what is true and he is to be depended on. And this guy, Antipas, shares the title of Christ. Church tradition holds that this is a guy who was martyred during one of the, um, one of the Roman emperors named Diocletian. He was, uh, and this guy was martyred by being put into a brass bull and roasted alive. Welcome to Citadel Square. Some think he may have been the bishop or the pastor of this local congregation. He gave his life for faithfulness to the testimony of Jesus Christ at that time. You know what his name means? I love it. His name is awesome. His name is made up of two Greek uh, words, anti, which means against, anti-body, anti-Christ, anti-nomian, anti, you know, it's a, it's a prefix. And P-A-S is the Greek word for all. He's the guy who said, it doesn't matter how many people are against me. I stand against everybody based on the truth. So this is a guy that in his day and in his time, this church rallied around. This church said, we are not denying the faith. We are holding to the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I know where you are. I know where you live. I know what it's cost you to follow me and to trust me. He was killed among you. And there it is again. I know where you live. I know where Satan lives too. Not only is he enthroned, but he dwells right where you are. So has this church experienced consequences for holding to the faith of Christ? Yeah, they've lost one of their leaders. They've lost somebody who was all the way faithful to the truth of Jesus Christ to the end of his life. But there's a problem. Take a look at the next verse. there's their past faithfulness. Let's look at this present critique, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. What did the church hold in the beginning? Go back, look up a verse, right? Look at verse 13. You hold fast my name. But there are some. The church hasn't abandoned biblical inerrancy. They haven't abandoned justification by faith alone. They haven't abandoned sola scriptura. They haven't abandoned these great doctrinal uh, truths that build the life and faith of the church. They haven't walked away from them, but they've got a few people in the church. They've got a little bit. They've just got some. They've got some people who are coming and attending who are holding to a different kind of teaching. And it's a dangerous teaching. Now, look at what it says. They hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam in your New Testament is an interesting guy. He's essentially a witch doctor, kind of a shaman picture, a false prophet. And he's used in several places, both in 2 Peter and in Jude, to be an example of those who would adjust the truth for financial gain. That they would teach people what their itching ears want to hear so that their wallets would get fat. But that's not the purpose of his using this phrase here. Now, Jesus is looking at the teaching of Balaam. Well, what's the teaching of Balaam? Now, unless you've spent a lot of time in about eight chapters in the book of Numbers this week, you're asking the same question that I just asked. Who's Balaam? Why is he important? What's the teaching of Balaam? Look at what it says. They hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Let me tell you about those people. 
Balaam, as I said, kind of a witch doctor, shaman, false teacher who shows up in the book of Numbers. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. They were brought right up to the uh, edge of the promised land. They sent in the spies. Ten were bad. Two were good. You remember that? And they come back to Moses and say, we can't go into the promised land. The people are too big. The problem is such a, is such a big problem for us. Uh, we don't believe God can do it. And God effectively curses them to wander in the desert for 40 years. Now, during their wandering, they have two different kings that come up to them, kings of Sihon and kings of Og, that God takes care of and God totally annihilates. Then there's a third king, a king called Balak. Balak is the king of Moab. He's observing what is happening in his culture and in his day with the people of Israel who have the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, fighting for them. And he says, we've got a problem. I need to hire some spiritual help because these previous kings of Sihon and Og had no chance against the people of Israel. I need to hire this guy, Balaam. And he sends a message to Balaam. He tells Balaam, listen, there are these people who've come up from Israel and they are going to eat me like an oxen eats grass. It's a big problem. I want to hire you because you're in that spiritual realm and in that spiritual world. I want to hire you to curse them. Balaam says, I can't do that. I've got to say only what God speaks to me. And Balak keeps sending him money and saying, come on, come on, come on. Finally, Balaam comes. It's a great story about Balaam and the donkey that talks to save him from uh, the angel of the Lord killing him. Balaam shows up, gets ready to set up the sacrifices to curse the people of Israel. And God reverses the curse that comes from the mouth of Balaam. So that Balaam, instead of cursing the people of Israel, blesses them four different times. You can imagine how frustrating this is for the king. The king has paid him all this money to curse the people of Israel. It hasn't worked. God's taken the curse. He's reversed it. He's blessed his people. He uses even some of the prophecy of Balaam to predict that Jesus would come. That brings you all the way to Numbers chapter 24. That was a pretty good Old Testament review, wasn't it? Now you're in Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25 begins with the people um, committing idolatry and sexual immorality with the people of Midian. So what happens between Numbers chapter 24, where Balaam goes home after blessing everyone, the king of Balak goes home being frustrated that he can't uh, defeat these people by bringing down curses upon them from the spiritual realm. And then in chapter 25, the people of Israel fall. And that's the question. What is the teaching of Balaam? It's not his prophecy. Balaam takes another tactic. Once Balaam recognizes that he can't curse the people of Israel, he has another plan. He says, if I can't curse them, if God is their defender in the heavenly places and can turn every curse into a blessing for these people, then they have a defender that, and, and a protector that I can't penetrate. But what I can do is tempt them. So what Balaam does is he goes and he says, here's what you ought to do. These people have been wandering in the desert. These people are hungry. Balak, here's what I want you to do. Get some brisket, get some pulled pork. Get some wings. Get a little bit of fat back. And I want you to lay out a spread. 
And I want you to invite them to this feast. And then let them know that we're going to sacrifice. We're going to take this feast and take this meat, and we're going to sacrifice it to idols. So that what we're going to do is going to appeal to these people's cravings. We're going to appeal to their desires. I can't get them in trouble spiritually, but I can get them in trouble with what they crave. You know what happens? The people of Israel fall for it. And what's interesting, here's an example here in this, in this church. If Antipas was one of the key church leaders of the day, and he goes to his death being a faithful witness, you know who Balaam goes after? He goes after the leaders. He takes that one of the heads of the sons of Israel and one of the heads of the sons of um, Midian and takes this daughter and this son and has them come together and tempts them at the level of their leadership to compromise because of what they crave, because of what they desire. Now, keep that in your mind, okay? This church is dealing with the temptation to compromise because of what they crave. And there are some people there in the church who go, I think we should be able to have a foot in both worlds. I think we should be able to love Jesus and love the world. I think we should be able to, to compromise, to have the blessing of a relationship with God and now the blessing of the benefits of life in this sinful culture. We saw what it cost Antipas. Why can't we have a little bit of over here and a little bit of over there? So you ready for 1 Corinthians? Keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This isn't on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You see how your heading in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 starts? Warning against idolatry. Here's what Paul says. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, if you've got a Bible with cross-references, I want you to just circle some cross-references that are next to this text. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You got a cross-reference that says Exodus 14? That's them coming out and going through the Red Sea. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now you're in the book of Numbers. They were meant to believe God and go into the promised land. They didn't believe that God could do it. They didn't believe that God could provide. They didn't believe that God could defeat the giants in the land. They came back. They said, God can't do it. God brought us here to die. We can't believe in you. We can't trust God. God says, thank you very much, 40 years in the wilderness. Now, here's the book of Numbers, and there's four or five different references to the book of Numbers here just in this passage that reflects the thing that we're trying to understand is happening in the church at Pergamum. Look at verse 6. Now, these places, here's, here's Paul applying the book of Numbers to your life right now. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, watch his examples. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You got a cross-reference there in your Bible? It says Exodus 32. You know what Exodus 32 is? It's the golden calf incident. Moses goes up. We don't know where he went. We don't know what's become of him. Aaron takes the, the gold, puts it in the fire, and quote, unquote, out jumps this calf. 
Oh my goodness, I don't know what happened. Now we have moved into religious syncretism. We've taken some of Egypt and some of God and we put them together and the people rise up to play, which is a euphemism in Hebrew for the people committing sexual immorality. They desired evil. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. You got a cross-reference there? Numbers 25? That's the judgment that happens in Numbers chapter 25 when Balaam decides to appeal to their, tempt, to, to their temptations, to their cravings, and get them to compromise. Keep going. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. You got Numbers 21? Numbers 21 is where they, they say, Moses, we hate that you can't provide for us and we hate this worthless, loathsome food which is the manna that God had provided for his people in the desert wanderings. Numbers could be said, if you were to read through the book of Numbers and take a look at how much conflict happens in the book, it's consistently and often the desires of the people that get them into trouble. Their craving and their desires. They hate Moses, they hate the food, they long for Egypt, um, they want to um, indulge in sexual morality that their cravings and their desires constantly, constantly, constantly get them into trouble. Keep going. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You got number 16? Number 16 is the story of Korah who says, Moses, you are treating the people too harshly. These people are holy. Their desires are good. You want these people to uh, be punished for their sin, their lack of faithfulness to God. You don't understand how good the people are. And this is one of the great places in the book of Numbers. Have you read the book of Numbers? It's such a great book. The earth opens up and swallows this guy, his whole family, and everybody goes, whoa. It's a pro there's a problem. When the earth opens up and swallows people, would you agree that you are on the wrong side of God? Verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Read the book of Numbers and apply it to your life, is what Paul just said. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you're going to circle that word temptation, I would connect it back to verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, here's Paul's application. Flee from idolatry. What are the desires that show up in your heart? What are the things that you want? Where are the places in your life now, if you were honest, that you were starving and hungry for them to be satisfied? And if you have that in your mind, you know the temptation that is showing up in Pergamum. You know the temptation that the people of Israel are feeling. And you know how seductive Balaam's teaching is. 
Now, Paul applies it. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 10 to apply it to meat sacrifice to idols. And he said, people sacrifice uh, not to idols, not that idols are anything, but that people are sacrificing to demons. And when people, when, when, here's what Paul is saying. When you are partaking of food sacrificed to idols, what you are doing is shutting your mouth on one of the most important things about what it means to be a Christian. Keep going. Let's just, let's just look at it. Let me, let's just keep going. I'll read it. Verse 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 15. I, believe, I speak as, sens- as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. He'll go on to talk about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That our unity is determined by our theology. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are what? One body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar... What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? That's not the point, Paul says. No, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. See, the people of Israel are are compromising because of the cravings. That their cravings and desires back here lead them to compromise theology. Compromise their, um, on issues that they should be taking a stand on. You know the phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You heard that? You read that before? It's, it's quoted two places in your Bible. The first is in 1 Corinthians 5 about morality. That immorality will affect and infect the entire church if you don't address it. It's also quoted in Galatians chapter 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and it's about doctrinal purity. It's that if you don't address this doctrinal issue, issue in your church, it will affect the whole church. Now, let's come back to Revelation chapter 2, and let's see what the council is. You with me? Move your head in a direction if you're with me. Revelation chapter 2, okay? You're with me. Verse 16. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, repent. In context, what what are we doing when we repent? Let me ask you. Are you aware that your desires are not altogether holy all the time? Is that, is that news to you? Are you aware that the things that you think often are, are invitations into idolatry and compromise? That we have this, this war going on at the level of our hearts and in our minds. This is a war that will happen in a church as it encounters the culture. And we begin to now preach and teach things in the church that are not popular in the culture. And the temptation for a church is always to ask, can't we trim our sails on that so that people don't think that we're a little too old-fashioned? And you have those temptations personally, and I have those temptations personally, where we go, gosh, I really want this thing over here. Can I compromise a little bit and get what I want? I'll take Jesus and a little bit of this over here. Make sure I hold on and hold fast to Jesus, and I'll hold this teaching over here too. Therefore, repent. If not, if you don't repent and you don't address the issues and the temptations in your life and in your heart, 
that are invitations to idolatry, if a church doesn't address the teachings that, that infiltrate the church where they uh, begin to tempt you toward compromise, where they begin to tempt you toward giving in to the things that you crave and that you desire, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I already mentioned Korah, but if you think this is just an Old Testament idea where the ground opens up and swallows up people and go, oh, that was an Old Testament thing. Glad we're in the New Testament. Have you ever read Acts chapter 5 when people come and they give money to the church and they say they've given more than they've actually given and God strikes them both dead? I thought it was Jesus, kind, gentle, meek, and mild. He's killing people at church now? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about a misuse of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And he said, for this reason, some of you are asleep, which means some of you have died because you haven't treated God with the reverence and awe that you should. When Jesus says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to take care of these folks in your church, that should send a shiver down your spine. Look at verse 17. So what's, how do we apply this? How do you apply the truth of the letter of the church of Pergamum? He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. Now here's your application to the church that, see, the church at Pergamum should have been doing what the church at Ephesus was doing, identifying and examining the people who were the false apostles, who were preaching and teaching things that weren't in line with the truth of God. Pergamum should learn a lesson from, from Ephesus. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. That is such an interesting phrase. It is fascinating to me that the very thing that the people of Israel eventually came to hate is the promise for the church that is willing to examine its doctrine appropriately. Now, what is manna? Manna is a Hebrew word that means, what is it? Because when God gave it, nobody knows what it was. Nobody knows how it came there. And they had to gather it. When did they have to gather it? They had to gather it every day. Could they keep any overnight? They couldn't keep any overnight. They had to trust God every single night that they'd go to bed hungry and they'd wake up satisfied. I will give some of the hidden manna. Not only that, I will give him a white stone. Now, there's probably 12 interpretations of what the white stone is, okay? So, you probably didn't figure it out, and I'm not sure I totally figured it out. It's only used in one other place, and it's used of Paul when he shares his testimony about giving a verdict against the Christians that he persecuted. Some think it's a, it's a stone that was given to the victors in the games that was their invitation ticket into the feast that would follow. Others think it was a stone that was kind of like an invitation given to people who would come to these uh, idolatrous festivals that would result in eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, which is probably where I land on that. But why would Jesus be giving you an invitation ticket? And I think the, the secret to figuring this out is really in the promises that God gives to the church who conquers. What happens when the church holds to? Listen, there aren't that many truths that a church holds to that makes it a church. The Trinity, inerrancy of the word of God, 
by Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. You can differ on a lot of third tertiary issues, but the central tenets of a church, there aren't a lot of them. They're hills that you die on. A hill that you die on is where you take a stand and you say, you're not getting another inch. I will die for you to cross right here. They aren't, remember, the church isn't denying the Trinity. They're not denying substitutionary atonement. They're not denying the return of Christ. They're not denying any of those things. But there's a, temp, a temptation, there's a teaching that's infiltrating their church that's appealing to the desires of the people. Let me apply this and get real, real particular. Here's where I think the temptation for a church like Pergamum applies to the church in the 21st century. It's in the world of Christian publishing. Now, be honest with me. When you're going through a time in your life where you feel hungry and famished, where there's this gnawing desire in your life for, for relationship that's tempting you to compromise purity, for this temptation for financial success that's causing you to compromise integrity, that you just want peace at all costs so you won't speak up for the things that are true in relationships that you have. Isn't that hunger demanding that it would be satisfied? Don't you feel that? And the reality is for, for a lot of us, for many of us, for me even this week, when my desires come in contact with my beliefs, my desires win every time. Because I feel the gnawing hunger and the craving that shows up in my mind and my heart and my all of those things. You with me? You tracking with me here? And when that teaching shows up in a church, it shows up in the newest book that's... Um, that's recommended by the, the person that uh, has a lot of influence, what can happen is that people begin to read, because here's what happens. When I face hunger in my life, and you, you know what I'm talking about, spiritual hunger, desire over here that uh, desires to be satisfied, I want 16 different things that I can do to make sure the hunger goes away. Don't you want that? And a lot of times there's this thread in Christian publishing and books that are marketed to Christians that move you away from faith and trust in a God who can provide in the wilderness and into 17 ways in which you can fix your life, get it together, and not have as many difficulties in your life. If our church is built fundamentally to satisfy the desires of human, we have lost our church in one generation. Because the church has to hold fast the name. The church has to not deny the faith. So where are you hungry right now that you would do whatever it takes to satisfy that desire, to make the change in your life? And the promise to those who conquer and recognizing that, that my cravings will lead me to compromise, that my cravings will lead me to idolatry, that my cravings are not altogether good all the time, the invitation that comes from Jesus to you today, please listen to this, are two things that are hidden. Did you see that? It's hidden manna. It's an invitation to relationship and a name and a knowledge of who you are and where you are that nobody knows except Jesus himself for you. This is what a Christian lives on. 
This is how a Christian lives their life. They have a provision from God that they don't know where it comes from, but when they come to God in his word, God provides a day by day by day by day provision. Christians, amen? That he is faithful to satisfy the things that we need. And when Christians come to the word of God and they begin to know and seek and savor Jesus Christ, that they have this intimacy of relationship with God that allows them to navigate life in such a way where they have provision and intimacy, two massively important things for your Christian life. God never told you to be sufficient. He never told you to be independent. In fact, the majority of our lives, aren't they, are, are discovering that we aren't as sufficient as we thought. The majority of our lives is discovering that we aren't as independent as we thought. Do you know how you get through the book of Numbers and you get to the end of the desert wanderings and Miriam dies and Aaron dies and Moses goes up on the, on the mountain to die or he gets ready to and he, he gives you the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy means two things, second law, duet nomos, second law. And what the, Moses has to do is teach the generation of people who grew up during the desert wanderings what God is like. And he has to take their experience of, it, of having manna day by day by day by day provision. And he talks in Deuteronomy about their shoes not wearing out. My shoes wear out in two years. God kept their shoes intact for 40 years because you can't go to a New Balance or a Nike store when you're in the wilderness. And Moses looks back on the number, numbers wanderings. He looks back on 40 years where these people fell in the desert and God judged them. And he says something very important to the next generation. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll close here. Here's what he says, Deuteronomy 8. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. How did God lead them? What was God doing during the desert wanderings? What did he want to get out of them that was in them? What was happening when their cravings confronted the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of what God was doing? You remember the way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. You know when my self-sufficiency comes out? It's when I don't have what I want. You know when my anger shows up in my heart is when I don't have what I want. And my heart is wired to listen to the teaching of Balaam, to go, you can have what you want. It's just what you want. Go get what you want. Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. If you don't have the word of God, giving you strength and courage and power and insight and wisdom and understanding. Your desires will trump your beliefs every single day. You need the word of God to reveal what is going on, to give you that exposure and evaluation for the desires in your life and your heart. That's what a church needs. Amen? And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Isn't that what a great verse what a great verse. He let you hunger. God, you're supposed to be providing all of my needs. No, I let you hunger. I let you feel the gnawing desire in your tummy. And then I fed you with manna. 
which you did not know, nor did your father know. You know what I would call that? I'd call that hidden manna. I'd call that hidden provision. I'd call that a relationship between God and his people where he knows exactly what they need. He's not going to let them go hungry, but he's going to provide it in supernatural ways. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you, uh, I'll say it again, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What's the promise for those who conquer and acknowledge that their desires are leading them into compromise, that their cravings are leading them to a place of idolatry? It's to return to the word of God so that you would be reminded that your relationship with God is one of fantastic, supernatural, heavenly, hidden provision and an intimacy that you can only receive by a knowledge of holding fast his name and the revelation of Jesus Christ in the word of God. See, compromise will lead you to a place where your cravings have the last word. Jesus says, overcome, conquer, come to me, and I'll give you the, all the provision and all the intimacy that your church would ever need. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great? That that's what's in store for a church that holds fast to the truth of the word of God. That's what I pray would be you, that our counseling, our discipleship, our exhortation, our encouragement of one another would come from the word. And that you would see God do things that, listen, if I go back over the course of my life and list the places in my life where I felt hunger, and God provided in ways that I did not expect, I did not plan, I did not foresee, and that certainly didn't speak to my, dependent, or my independence and my self-sufficiency, we'd be here for another hour. And Christians in this room right now have those stories where they put their faith and hope and trust not in getting what they want, but on doing the will of God. And God came through, God provided, and they have a relationship with God where, of pure intimacy. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for our church. Father in heaven, may these things be true of the church at Citadel Square. Father in heaven, may we hold fast your name. May we not deny your faith with the content and the truth of the revelation of the word of God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. Be the central <clears throat> theology of this church. For those of us who are wandering into teachings that would affirm that all of our desires are good and holy and right. May we reorder the affections of our heart according to the word of God, that you would get the glory and that you would provide, even for individuals in this room here today, Father, who feel the gnawing hunger of a situation or a circumstance not being what they want it to be. I pray that you would provide, even today, hidden manna, that you would remind them of your great love for them, that you would give them a reminder of your provision and your intimacy, that you know where they dwell, you know their name, you know their zip code, you know their needs, and that you are a God who provides and a God who gives intimacy and relationship to those who uh, pray in spirit and in truth. So, Father, may the truth of God reorient us here this morning. May they reorient my heart and the hearts of individuals in this room. May we be a people that not... Uh, give in to the cravings of, and desires of our heart that would lead us into compromise, but that we would trust you, that we would lean on your word, clinging to it and holding fast to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.